Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. And I felt there ain't no way I'm talking about this or that. I needed a job. I had a wife. Oh, by the way, my son was born in Germany just before we left. So I had that nine months for a duty in Germany. And boy, we took care of that real well. <laughs> and anyway, I was put it this way, Bob. That was the start of me going into my bunker. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation in the stigma-free vet zone. Our guest today is Joe Campbell. Joe lives in the Milwaukee suburb of Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. He's joining us today from his home. Joe served with the United States Army in Germany and in Vietnam. He has been active in veterans outreach and other efforts for decades. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today and for your willingness to share your story with us. Well, you're more than welcome, Bob, and I appreciate the opportunity to share. It's great to have you on board. Let's talk a little bit about your personal history, where you grew up, your life before the military, your family. Jump in wherever you like. Okay, well, we'll start out with June 5th, 1947, <laughs> was the day I was born in Elmhurst, Illinois, and I was born to the John and Mary Campbell family, and I was the eighth out of nine children. And we grew up starting in Lombard, Illinois. And my father died in 1954 with a heart attack, very young. We moved to St. Charles, Illinois, so my mother, who was a nurse, could be closer to the hospital where she worked at. So we grew up in St. Charles, Illinois for a pretty good time. And I went to grade school at St. Patrick's and went on to the seminary to study for the priesthood for two years, my freshman and sophomore year. I had one brother that was a priest and another brother studying, and I, and I felt it might be my calling also. I went to the Missionaries of Sacred Heart in, in uh, Geneva, Illinois, two years, and realized that this really was not my calling. I went to uh, Marmion Military Academy for my junior and senior year in high school, not to my own liking, but my mother's insistence because it was a... Uh, also a Catholic school. As it turns out, I did well there. 
I had a liking for automotive technology and had been working on cars as a part-time job at a Sinclair gas station in St. Charles, Illinois. And I uh, decided to go to uh, Allied Institute of Technology in Chicago to take up automotive technology. So once I graduated from uh, high school, of course, I had to work right away to be able to earn money and pay for this upcoming school. And I did a construction job for about three months and then uh, went to live in a uh, small, I'll call it a, a dump. It was a very cheap hotel that allowed us to uh, have two, three guys to a room. And it was only about a block and a half away from the school. And we were able to, you know, go to the same class together. And I did not have enough funds to really uh, stay in school. So the school provided a job opportunity at United Parcel Service in Chicago, which I did work. And I went to work at like six in the morning till like two in the afternoon, loading and unloading trucks, if you will, and then go to school from like three in the afternoon till nine at night. I will tell you that uh, got to be quite a challenge. And UPS, you worked your butt off in, rightfully so. And school was not just uh, pulling wrenches. It was getting into theory and, and all kinds of formulas and what have you about performance. And I really liked it a lot. But then the Vietnam War was picking up quite, quite heavily on the news quite often. And I got thinking, if I graduate from this thing in a year or two, I'm going to probably get drafted right away. And so I just, uh, out of curiosity, talked to a, a recruiter. I laugh only because you always got to trust the recruiter. He'll say and do anything to get you to sign the the bottom line. Of course, I was too naive to know that. And he said, oh, they got wonderful programs. And he gave me one of the course outlines at Aberdeen Proving Ground, Maryland, that the the Army would provide in about 18 weeks of uh, training. Uh, Well, why should I work here in, in Chicago and pay for school when I can go in the Army and get that done? and accomplish it at the same time. So off I went, and that was in uh, January of 1966. So you were looking at the uh, possibility and and actually a likelihood of being drafted, but instead you you chose to enlist then in the Army. Is that right? Absolutely. And then instead of going the two-year draft, which was the official time at that that time in our, our life, if I enlisted for three, you're right, Bob, three years gave me the guarantee that I would be able to go to that special uh, automotive technology school that the Army provided. So that's that's what got me there. Now, did you have other family members, uncles, for instance, or, or aunts, for that matter, that had served in the military, or were you really the first in your family to go that route? Well, I had an uncle who served in World War II, never talked about it, never talked about it at all. Matter of fact, that's just the way he was. It didn't look to be like a problem. He just didn't want to talk about it. Then one of my older brothers went to the Air Force, and and that was probably around 1963. And my uh, mother was uh, really struggling, from what I understand, to keep track of us boys or or young boys, me and my younger brother. So he left the Air Force and came home and that was the only uh, background. He never, I think he only spent about two and a half years in the Air Force, and I didn't see much of him. So that was my first really awakening 
I, I mean, as I grew in life, I found out uncles and what have you, and but we never discussed it till later in life. So you had some, you had some really legitimate expectations here from what the army would provide to you in terms of a technical trade education and and some future in that. How did that work out? Yeah, Bob, I tell you that was absolutely correct. Matter of fact, one of the. Uh, the senior instructor, a gentleman by the name of Otto Kuhn, just a wonderful man who really took a liking to me and I to him. He was concerned about me dropping out of the school only after about five months. But he said that, by God, you get yourself taken care of, Joe, study hard in there. And when you come back, you're going to have a job here at helping me in the training department at Allied Institute of Technology. And I thought, wow. So I had that in my, if you will, my hip pocket. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really wonderful that I would have a job. Never given thought about Vietnam at this point in time. <laughs> Did you finish the uh, trade course, the technical course with the Army before you deployed? Yes, uh, they, they uh, took care of it quite well. And it was kind of strange. I'm trying to think. When I got out of Aberdeen and we finished up, they called all the uh, all the guys into an auditorium to get our assignments, as I recall, and figure out you know where we're going to go. Nobody knew at that time, and so they would just call off your name. And when your name was called, you'd go stand under a blue plate, an orange plate, green plate, or what have you. But they would say, like, the two guys that I was very good friends with, DeFazio, Blue Plate, Vietnam, Clyde Lies, Blue Plate, Vietnam. I'm sitting right next to these guys, Campbell, Red Plate, Germany, and and Clyde, my my good friend, had just gotten married and his wife uh, was pregnant, and he is just devastated. And so I went, which I had learned real quick, I went up to the first sergeant or whoever was in charge and said, why don't we just switch because we got the same skill and, and, and I'll, I'll go to Vietnam and he can go to Germany. Well, you don't go talking to the first sergeant. He just tells you to get your ass back and lie and shut up. And if, when you get to your assignment, you can have a request called the 1049 for a transfer. Now shut up and get in line. So bingo. <laughs> here, here we are, Bob. So you are off to Germany. Not only was I off to Germany, I got my first <laughs> first trip, uh, all expense paid cruise on the General Maurice Rose, <laughs> eight days from New York to, uh, to Bremerhaven, Germany, with a troop ship with about two thousand other guys. And <laughs> all expense paid, by the way. <laughs> and then, <laughs> we landed in, uh, in Bremerhaven, and they even took us on a good troop train on the southern part of Germany all the way up to Frankfurt, the central part. And off we go, and I wind up with the 8th Infantry Division in Bad Kreuznach, Germany. And believe it or not, <laughs> I'm laughing. It, it really wasn't laughable, but... When I, when I signed in, I said, I'd like a request for a 1049. I don't even know who the hell I am, other than I got my paperwork for the, being assigned to them and said, well, if you want a 1049, fill out the form there and move over and get registered. So <laughs> one thing led to another. So that was in August of 66. 
why were you anxious to get to Vietnam from Germany? Because I felt I never even wanted to go to Germany. I felt by signing up, that's a good question, Bob. The the reality was, one, my, my fiance, my girlfriend, was away to college. I'm away at school. She's going to be in there for a couple of years. I thought, you know, if I go to the service, and, and, the, and the thing is, I would much rather go and get Vietnam over with feeling some way along the line, I'm going to wind up there, so I might as well do it now. And I, and I didn't have a fear of it. I felt it would be the right thing to do, and I'd be honored to do it. And the fact that Clyde and, and Dan were on their way over there, and some other guys that I had known along the way, you know, were also in the service. And I thought, if that's where it is, that's where I need to be. So anyway, I filled out the form August the 66th. And then, lo and behold, December of 66, my company commander comes to me and tells me he would like me to go to officer's candidate school. I had been soldier of the month with the division, and there were a lot of good things, but we don't need to go into that right now. Did very, very well. Forgot about, really, the 1049. And then the reason he came to me in early December is that my 1049 came through, and he knew it, and I didn't know it yet. He That's why he asked me if if I wanted to go to officer's candidate school because it would be a, a detour from the direct orders of going to Vietnam. And, you know, and I said, no, I'll, I'll keep my orders. And I thought, well, you know, really, I'm really a lucky guy. I got to go home on December 22nd, just before Christmas, and I'd be able to be home for uh, three weeks to a month leave before going to Vietnam. And so that, that turned out you know, to me, really, really special. And the hard part was didn't want my family to know that I had volunteered, but I didn't want my fiance to know that if anything were to happen to me, don't go be mad at the Army, be mad at me, because I'm the one that asked for it. So in any event, that was a, 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 a tough Christmas, and, and now I'm seeing the Vietnam on the news because, of course, in the United States, they didn't show a lot of Germany TV. And I ooh, boy. Anyway, here we go, Bob. So now we're into early 1967, and you have arrived in Vietnam. Where did you go? To, to whom were you attached? February 12th, 1967. Wow. And, and what was your job when you got to Vietnam, Joe? I was assigned to the 1st Logistical Command in a, uh, working on artillery and automotive maintenance and repair. They started me out in Benoit with the first log was support division for all the uh, other units like the 25th and the 101st and the 82nd Airborne, uh, the 1st Infantry. They provided that type of uh, service for those divisions throughout the country in Vietnam. And uh, so they started me out in Long Ben, and then the unit that I was with there was broken into small contact teams, and that would have been like one NCO and a couple corporal or privates and one warrant officer. And then we were assigned as a contact team specific to a given unit, and they transferred me to Coochie with the 25th Infantry Division within a month or two after I was there. 
So how did your arrival in Vietnam line up with what your expectations were of Vietnam? Is it what you expected or different? (laughs) Candidly, Bob, I'm telling you, Chicago had one of the biggest snowstorms ever. When, when, when I was there, it turns out, uh, you know, I just got out of town when it was cold and mounds of snow, and now I'm in Vietnam, and it's probably about 90 degrees, hotter than hell, uh, stunk like crap, and just like in, in uh, I'm trying to think, the Robin, uh, Good Morning Vietnam, where, you know, you're coming in, and uh, the, the boys with their khaki uniforms on, and the other guys are coming out looking a little bit ragged, red and worn, torn, you know, and it's like, oh, man, did I make a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this is a little bit more than I, but shut up, Joe, tighten your boots. You're here because you asked for it. And sure enough, I did. And uh, I will say, though, the first day, Bob, was quite challenging because, We didn't have rifles at that time. We weren't really assigned yet. We were just a group, and we were given a tent to go in and with our few little things. And uh, there was a mortar attack that night. We were told to go into a bunker, and lo and behold, you know, I mean, you you don't have a damn thing to defend yourself with other than protection. But uh, the the trenches uh, between the bunkers and, and the tents were because of the monsoon rains, which we didn't know a lot about at that moment in time. But to get all that excess water out, well, I hate to point this out, but it was a fact. A lot of guys were just pissing that damn thing at night because they didn't want to go out any further. And so they were really kind of richy. And I was in the bunker, and I hear this guy hollering for help, and I'm getting ready to go out of the bunker and help this guy that's in the trench with this piss-ass water, and a sergeant, I don't know who he was, slapped me up inside the tin, the bunker and said, let the son of a bitch die. And I thought, boy, are you ruthless. And then uh, he explained that if that guy wants to drug and do what he was doing, and you ain't giving your life for that. And so that was my first very, very rude awakening. And uh, hello, Vietnam. How did things proceed from there? That's, I mean, that's a shock, what you've just described. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I'll tell you, the shortly, I mean, then they pulled our unit out, like I said, from Long Bend, and I and five other guys wound up in Coochie with the 25th. And Coochie was a pretty big base camp. And, and, of course, now I can look back, and history says there were tunnels all over the place. Well, when we were there, didn't know a damn thing about those tunnels, although there were a few of them here and there, and they'd have tunnel rats, guys that would volunteer to go into them, not, and not this one. But anyway, we were under attack quite often, but they also had a uh, situation where they wanted volunteers to go out and do guard duty at various with the uh, medical civic action teams that would go out into the villages and provide security while the doctors and nurses and medics would go and try and uh, win hearts and and do the right thing in helping these people. And I volunteered for that. And the reason I point that out, not for any accolades or anything like that, but one, it was certainly something that I felt good about doing. And then I got to meet the kids and stuff like that. And the doctors and nurses were forever very, very grateful. And it was always done during the day. We made sure we were never there 
uh, before the sun went down. And but I ironically uh, took a lot of wonderful pictures of kids, which I'll get into later in this interview. Just really felt good about it. And lo and behold, after a couple months there in, in uh, Coochie, the 101st Airborne had a new brigade coming into Phuken, which is a little bit north of where I was at. And they needed just a contact team help system to get them established while they were coming. And, and so they transferred me up to Phuken. And I was up there for probably about five or six months. That was really a, a good group of guys that I was with. And it was a, a little more hellhole than Kuchi. But thereafter, uh, I, I don't know if you kind of get, I'm trying to think kind of what the what the word is, but you just kind of block it out. You know, I mean, I, I take a look at, and the, the first month was really a, a very, very tough month trying to adjust and, and through the complete change of life and lifestyle and fear and unknown and all that. And then after that, it's like, <laughs> I got so much time. I don't give a shit about anything. I excuse the French, but. I'm just going to do what I need to do and try and keep my, myself alive and help others uh, also. So, you know, I really, so what? So I'm in Fukvin. But I got, again, a, a chance to be around some, some guys. We we had a probably a little bit better of a uh, hut, not a, not so much a tent, but a, actually a structure type thing. And that was nice. And we had a lot more freedom because we were not at, yeah, we were attached to the 101st, but we didn't have to <laughs> do all the running and stuff that they did. So that, that that worked out pretty well. So you had experiences where you you saw what war is all about, and you had the fears and, and what have you that are associated with it. But at the same time, you had these experiences with children you mentioned. So you you had this human component that you experienced in Vietnam as well. Is that right? Absolutely, Bob. And I tell you, you know, I, I was very, very fortunate. Matter of fact, I didn't realize how fortunate I was when I talked to so many of my friends, you know, years later about, you know, not being able to be around the kids or around the kids that were just uh, bringing hand grenades or whatever, you know, that, that they were told to do to get good old G.I. Joe. So I was really blessed in that case. And I think that the village, I hate to call them village people, but, you know, most of the uh, people in, in the village of Fukvin, a lot of them worked within the base camp. And I know there were crooks and there were, you know, people judging, uh, trying to how to get the mortars in more accurately and stuff like that. And, and I guess, again, that's just one thing we just kind of took for whatever. And then, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to go lightly on it. Don't think for a second. I mean, we did a lot of guard duty, an awful lot of guard duty. And that was to allow the, the wonderful combat uh, troops to go out and do their job. So when they came in, we were performing that uh, two hour on, two hour off, five, six days a week at night from six at night till six in the morning and with our claymores and stuff like that. So I was really blessed uh, to be able to, help serve my brothers that were out there really pounding some serious, serious crap. Even with the volunteering, we, we had experienced some things, but I guess the thing is, is that I, I just was really, really blessed. And then, then I wound up, uh, Bob, where right after 
January of 68. They transferred me down to the 1st Infantry Division in uh, in Zeon, which was just north of Saigon by about 20 miles. And I really don't know why, but as it turns out, I was due to go home on February 12th, 1968 was my rotation date. And you never forget that day. So I had, you know, like 20 in a wake up, which was <laughs> kind of our vernacular where <laughs> you were a short timer and you, so you always had to throw that wake up in there. And as it turns out, uh, January 31st, I was taking my uh, warrant officer who was in charge of our uh, contact team was going home and asked me if I would take him to Tonsonut Saigon because he's going to go flying, flying home. Well, to give you an idea of how security was at that time, that was never a, a concern. I mean, we had to carry our rifles and flak vests and all that stuff, but it was pretty well secured and never really a thought given as far as a problem. And if there was, we would respond accordingly, but never really had that thought. And lo and behold, we're heading out at about 6 in the morning, and we got on this uh, road to Highway 1 going into Saigon, which actually was a four-lane good road. And I'll be a son of a gun right before uh, Newport Bridge, which is the main bridge going into Saigon and the boatyards, shipyards. And I'll be, there were were all kinds of jeeps all over the place, and there was smoke coming up and bombs going off, and what the hell? And so we hit the, uh, I mean, I just did hit the uh, brakes and we dove in a ditch, not knowing what's going on, but it was chaos all over the place. Well, it turns out that was uh, the start of the Tet offense of 1968, which was quite terrible. As it turns out, I uh, asked, <laughs> this is almost too good to be true. The guy that I landed to, that landed next to as I jumped in the ditch, you know, I asked him, what the hell's going on? And he said, oh, they're being attacked over here. They're, you know, blah, 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 this and that. And I said, well, I can see that. He said, where'd you come from? And I told him. He said, well, I'd get the hell out of here if it would appear to be clear going going north. And that, that was First Sergeant Matos from basic training. Now, he didn't remember me, but I certainly remembered him. But in any event, after that, the uh, warrant officer... Uh, and I, we, we headed back to Xeon, and I thought, well, we can try to go to Benoit, which was north of there, and he could fly out of there. Well, we got to within uh, probably a mile of the uh, mile and a half of Benoit Air Base, and the military police was out there waving us down. And we're the only ones on the road at the time in this Jeep. He says, get the hell out of here. They're having an attack. And where'd you come from? And then, then you know, I came from Xeon. You better get back. Well, Anyway, that very quickly, we got back. And there, Bob, I tell you, I, I kind of, you know, that was January 31st, February 1st. And th- there's part of my tour that I really don't remember much. All I do remember is on February 7th that my company commander came to me and said, get your duffel bag, you're out of here, you're going home. And I thought, that can't be. I'm not due to go home till the 12th. Well, you're going, and we got two hours to get you to Benoit. I thought, well, this is fine by me. And I grabbed it and didn't get a chance to say goodbye to anybody. I'm gone. And I'm on that Freedom Bird. 
and you could hear a drop. I'm going to jump ahead here just a little bit, Joe, because um, we got quite a bit of ground to cover. Here, let me let me frame up this question. So you, you fly home, you're, you arrive back in the United States. Can you summarize for me what it was like coming home? Was it what you expected or was it different or how was it? Now, it was one, I was really still in a case of shock getting out of Vietnam so quick. And then we landed in California, Fort Ford, I think it was. In any event, we had to go through a process to be uh, discharged from there, even though I'm still in the Army. I, oh, I, by the way, Christmas of 67, I received orders to go back to Germany. I had nine months left when when I got back, and so I got these orders that you're going back to Germany. That was in December before I left Vietnam, and I thought, holy cow. Anyway, as it turns out, uh, when we went to uh, the airport to get our flight by flight to uh, Chicago, nobody knew I was coming home from my family yet because they were expecting me on the 12th or 13th of February. But uh, I called my sister from uh, and asked her if she would meet me in Chicago. And it was colder than shit at that time. <laughs> Coming from the hot zone. Anyway, she picked me up and I drove up to Minnesota. Went on to Minnesota to pick up my fiance. And, and, and that was, uh, you know, <laughs> that was quite a surprise because she was in all girl college of St. Teresa and, she did not know I was home yet, and I'm calling from a pay booth, and uh, <laughs> yeah, because I didn't, I was just too shy. I had my uniform on. By the way, yes, I was harassed. You'd asked, harassed to beat hell at the airport about being a pig and a baby killer. And I, what the hell is this? You know, and I wanted, to, and there were other guys that just don't, don't get in the fight. You'll be in trouble. Now, what did we do? Anyway, I'm blown off on that, you know, and so as it turns out, I meet my fiance outside the, her dorm and she gets in the car and I just said, will you or won't you? Because I had written her a letter about me going to Germany in December and I wanted to get married before I went. And <laughs> so I just basically, will you or won't you? And <laughs> she just like, oh no. Anyway, we wound up, uh, she said yes and uh, finished up her little classes that she had to uh, take there and and we proceeded to uh, make plans and my brother was a part-time chaplain the priest at, in, at Camp Pendleton so I called him and asked him if he could come home for March 9th and marry us before I go to Germany and once that was resolved we were we were on our way so what when you finished with the the tour the the second tour in Germany now you're out of the army and what was what was life like then did you get together with old friends were you accepted by them were things different did you need to adjust can you summarize what was going on then Yeah it was very difficult Bob I would say that a lot of my some of my friends were were still in the army marines or whatever some of my friends were really anti-war and you know, just I, 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 I'm watching TV. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why all this stuff against the Vietnam War. And I'm thinking, you know, we grew up with Johnny comes marching home, hurrah, hurrah! Everybody loved us, and boy, we ain't seeing none of this crap. And so I felt, you know, I'm not even going to discuss it. 
And uh, the very, very few people that I did, you know, were people that were close to me. And But I didn't want to talk about anything. First of all, I want to get married and I want to go to Germany. And it was surprising because I was one of the few guys that had served in Vietnam that was in Germany. Most of them had been in Germany or wherever, but had not done Vietnam yet. So it was a case really of not really talking a lot about it. And there wasn't, I wasn't worried about being called up uh, to go back. But in any event, I would say that I was uh, somewhat to myself that I didn't want to talk about it. Did you feel like an outsider? Oh, totally. Totally. You know, because of all the protests and, and stuff again, I did not realize in the year that I was there how bad and, and the shootings and Kent State and all this stuff starting to show on TV. And, you know, the protests and guys that, and gals that I knew, you know, it's just, it was pathetic. And I felt there ain't no way I'm talking about this or that. I needed a job. I had a wife. Oh, by the way, my son was born in Germany just before we left. So I had that nine months for a duty in Germany. And boy, we took care of that real well. <laughs> and anyway, I was put it this way, Bob. That was the start of me going into my bunker. And I didn't realize it till later in life. We're visiting with Joe Campbell, who served in both Germany and Vietnam with the United States Army. And Joe, you've given us a, a vivid description of your service experiences, not the least of which just a moment ago, talking about going into your bunker. Is that where you hid your feelings? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, that's exactly. I felt that was where I felt safe. I mean, I couldn't do anything coming out of it that I could get shot. If I stay in it, that's mine. I am safe for the most part. I felt very, very safe in my bunker, and I didn't have to tell anybody anything. In, now, let me ask you this. In reality, were, were you safe, do you think? Oh, no. No, the thing, Bob, that none of this made, as I reflect back on it for crying out loud, it was killing me. Something that I volunteered for that was so proud to serve our country and to see these young guys getting killed. Some of them, my very good friends from that I grew up with kids, you know, not counting the ones that I knew over there in Vietnam. You know, we knew Tex and we knew Bucko and all these guys by name, but, you know, to even mourn them for crying out loud. I could do that alone in my bunker, but boy, I'll tell you, it tore me apart. It tore me apart. Joe, let me ask you this. What happened with all of that? Where did it lead, ultimately? To alcohol. To alcohol. That became my new bunker. And it was pathetic. The more, the more angry I got, and my wife, a very loving, caring person, but she would see the rage come out, you know, and I would get so angry. I'm doing all I can not to swear. I'd get so angry at watching the news and I was just disgusted. And my younger brother went to Vietnam two years after I did. And then when he got out, being the fact that uh, he had no place to live anymore, mom gave up the house. And so he, I said he could live with me. He was just nothing but a druggie at that point, And I just hated that. 
and kicked them out of my house. And, you know, I mean, my, my patience level, my understanding level, my forgiveness level, all that, you know, the hell with it. You know, if you knew where I was at and saw what I saw, you'd drink too, so leave me alone. Ultimately, you sobered up, and you have yep. been sober for many years. My question is, you have spent decades in outreach to other veterans that have had struggles and uh, and really some difficult life issues. When did that outreach begin, and what motivated you to do that? Well, Bob, that's a very, and I'll, I'll try and make it short, but it wasn't short at all. 29 years of marriage to a wonderful woman who raised five of our beautiful children had finally said she had enough of my drinking. And I kept telling her, if you knew what I knew, which I just said earlier, you'd leave me in. And Joe, you're not going to get help. I don't need help. You need help. Everybody else's fault, not mine. Leave me alone. Well, guess what? Here comes the papers from the judge or whatever that I'm being paper, divorce papers and with a restraining order. And oh man, I was absolutely livid. I do all I can not to swear in this, this, <laughs> our talk. But as it turns out, after about four or five months living alone in an apartment and being uh, fractured, fractured relations with my children, a very good friend of mine uh, had called me up and asked me if I'd ever been on a retreat. And he was referring to a uh, spiritual retreat. And I told him, yeah, I was when I was in the seminary, you know, three-day type thing. He said, well, there's a very good place in in uh, Oshkosh called the Jesuit Retreat House. And they have a, a, a retreat coming in, in December that is three days and uh, three nights. And uh, it's a silent retreat, Joe, and I think it would be very good for you. Now, they, he, he's an attorney, but again, he was not for, uh, he was not calling me as an attorney. He was calling me as a friend who knew my wife's sis and knew me and our family and our children. And I thought, you know, well, I need help. I really need help. And thought, well, he said, look, I'll, I'll go. they got one reservation left. And so we made it. I go up there, Bob, and it was December 4th. And they have a dinner at six o'clock. And I, you know, 60 some other guys didn't know any of them go into the, uh, have our dinner, go into the chapel, beautiful chapel right along Lake Winnebago. And uh, a guy gets up in the pulpit and says, hi, my name is Pat and I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, who gives a shit? <laughs> what does that have to do with this? Sounds like you're in the right place. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I was, <laughs> I'm laughing now, but I'll tell you, I'm trying to think how the hell I get out of here and, you know, just leave. Did you leave? No. And what happened? No, I Three days, and Bob, <laughs> I've been sober ever since. And when I left that retreat on that Sunday afternoon from a Thursday night when I went, left on a Sunday afternoon, I called my, my daughter and said to meet me at my apartment and pick up my booze because I'm an alcoholic and I'm not going to pour it down the sink. It costs too much money. 
I, I tell you, that's the truth. And as it turns out, man, I'm sitting on my hands and knees. Yeah, what am I going to do? Yeah, I'm losing my best friend, <laughs> my bunker, if you will. <laughs> you know, it's gone. And one of the one of the uh, retreatants from uh, Milwaukee, wonderful man, called me and said, "Hey, I'd like to take you to a meeting." <laughs> and I think I don't need any more meetings. And he, he convinced me. I went and, and been going ever since. And that's where the turnaround came in. Is all of a sudden, good old Joe, who doesn't have any problems, and everybody else is his problem. You know, is saying, "Wait a minute here." I need help. And thank God, I just take a look. There was one part in AA that I still, to this very day, never, ever forget and remind myself, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I explain some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life, that you know, and blame them, I ain't going to see nothing. And as it turns out, Bob, that was, I met some of the finest people. I couldn't believe them telling their stories. Why would they tell this in front of other people? And then saying, you know, we have a, a, a unity and a bonding here and a respect. And boy, all of a sudden I started getting out of myself. And that's when I started realizing the more you get out of yourself, the more you get out of yourself. <laughs> and by God, that started me on the journey. Let me ask you a couple of things here. You owned your own business for many, many years, now run by one of your your sons. And you went out of your way to hire veterans, many of, or at least some of whom were struggling uh, as you were. Was that part of your outreach that stemmed from your awakening that came from AA? Well, Bob, you know, the thing that, uh, that led me to I had nothing to do with veterans up to that point, nothing. And I was not, I never went to any veteran organizations or nothing. And when I started going to the VA for, they had an AA meeting there just like anywhere else, but I read it in their where and when book. And I went over there and I thought, holy cow, I like this group. You know, there are a bunch of vets here and I'm listening to them, and I'm thinking, holy cow, that's what started the outreach. And then one of the, I found out I was <laughs> the one rare guy that came from the outside, meaning not part of an in-treatment program. And I would go every week, every Sunday, and every Wednesday at, at the VA, and I started realizing these guys Man, they really like me, and and I really love their honesty and see how they're struggling and say, by God, if there's anything I can do to help them. And some of them are really first-class people, and I'd hire them part-time or have them help out in a special project. And they loved it, and I loved it. Some went back. Some didn't. But I just found what a a gift that, that has been given me. And for these people to like me, you know, and, and respect me and saying, wait a minute here. <laughs> I, I, I didn't earn this. They're, they, I mean, this is a, the, the greatest gift of all. So that's what, what and, and it progressed, Bob, obviously, for 20-some-plus years, you know, every Sunday, and saying, boy, that helped me more than it helped them. This gift of sobriety that you describe, how did that help you with 
those memories of Vietnam that were welded onto you for those years you spent in your bunker? Well, I'll tell you, I would just briefly share when the traveling wall, and I'm, I'm in sobriety now, I'm getting counseling at the VA, and the traveling wall it was going to Waukesha. And I was getting semi-involved with our local Vietnam vets chapter here in Milwaukee. And they wanted a representative from our chapter to go to Waukesha to help out with the wall. And boy, that was the last place I wanted to go because I did not want to go back to Vietnam. If you understand what I'm trying to say, no way. I had enough with my nightmares. I had enough of the crap that I saw and read about, I don't want to talk about Vietnam. And uh, this was early on now, by the way, shortly after the recovery started. But I went to the wall there and I brought guys from the VA while I sat in the parking lot where we were to perform security while people took the bus to visit the wall. I had them go to the wall on the bus. I stayed in the parking lot and I didn't go to the wall till the last day and it rained and nobody's there. I'm there and I go up to the wall by myself and that's where it happened. And I came and saw it rained and I was the only one there. There were security, but they were in their Jeep. And that started the journey about, you know, I can see my friend Paul and I can see my friend Tom and I can see all my friends and my, you know, and, it's like, wow, it tore me up the right way. So this was a moment of peace, it sounds like, of reconciliation. It was, a, it was the start where I could actually look at that wall and start the process when I felt so bad for them and their loved ones and what they were going through. But I started to take a look, what can I do? And Bob, there was a, one gal who came up. I, I didn't know it. It was raining and taps me on the shoulder. And I'm right by the middle of the wall. And she said, you're a Vietnam vet. I had nothing that said that, no hat, jacket, or nothing. And I said, yes, I am, ma'am. And she points down to a picture and a flower. And that's her husband. And he was killed well, like in two weeks after he was there. He was with the 25th Infantry Division in Coochie. No, Lord, don't take me there. And I'm, I'll make it quick. And I just said, well, when was he there? He was killed in 69. I said, I left in 68. And I'm very sorry, ma'am. And she said, well, you know, he was, uh, he was a point guard. And they, why would they take a guy with least experience and put him at the point? I said, ma'am, you could have the best experience. Anyway, that caught me. And I thought, oh, Lord, why do you put this in my life now? I gave her a beautiful hug and told her how sorry I was and that, by God, he was not selected. You know, he was not used. He was a good man. Anyway, that started it all. And that was the process, I think. When I, I go to the PTSD group, I started, or not started, I participated in with the Dr. Bernstein at the VA, and I just basically listened to these guys. And all of a sudden, I felt, you know, Joe, you're not alone anymore. You're not alone. There's a brotherhood there that wants you and you want them. And that's what started it, Bob, and still does. I'm going to start to uh, wrap things up here, Joe, with the minutes we have left, about three, four minutes to go. So let me, let me send a couple of questions your way. Are you 
surprised by the course that your life has followed, given the depth of the experiences you've had in Vietnam and on through recovery and on through your outreach to other veterans? Does, does that surprise you sometimes? Oh, it does. You know, the, the thing I, I would say that I look back and I was in hell. And the beauty of recognizing that is when I started getting out and got out, I didn't want to ever go back there. And I now understood how people wind up in hell for no reason of their own, maybe, not being able to get the help that they needed or the support that they needed or the love, the hug, the smile. I understand. I'm with you. The listening. All this came. Am I surprised? You better believe it. I wound up going to hell, and now I don't have to go back, and I don't want to go back, and I want to help everyone that I possibly can, that I've been blessed. And that's why when I call it a gift, is that by God, the best gift that I think we could, any of us have is to be able to give that gift away, only to find that it gets more gifts in return. Just a beautifully eloquent statement. I I don't have a follow-up to that. Is there anything that I did not ask that you would like to add in? Please feel free to do that. No, Bob, the only thing I would like to wrap up from my side is I, one, uh, if you ask me when I was in Vietnam, <laughs> it was last night and this morning. And I, I'm not kidding, and you know what I'm saying, but it was a different kind of a visit, and a visit one that I feel bad for all those but you know what, Bob? I feel so blessed, and I mean it so sincerely, and you know me, that the greatest gift I have is to live a good life of those for those guys and gals that gave their life for me. And the only way I can really thank them is by living a good life because of them. Joe Campbell, you're a, an inspiration to us. Thank you for the courage and your generosity to share your story. It's stunning. Bob, I love you. Welcome home. Thank you, Bob. We've been speaking with Army and Vietnam veteran Joe Campbell, and thank him for taking the time to visit with us today. We also want to thank our recording engineer, Kate Ostrakon. Please join us again when we hear more about some of Joe's experiences that have contributed mightily to the local community and played an instrumental role in not only his, but the lives of many other veterans and their families. This is Bob Bach. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.